You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Strides Forward podcast. Before we get started today, I wanted to introduce you to another podcast that I think you'll really love. I am a big fan. The podcast is Hear Her Sports, hosted by Elizabeth Emery. Hear Her Sports features long-form, intimate profiles of female athletes and other women in the sports space who are breaking boundaries, speaking up, and living with power and confidence. Elizabeth introduces us to strong women who have become successful in their sport and far beyond. Over the years, Hear Her Sports has highlighted Olympians, world champions, collegiate stars, rising champions, and women who have made sports their life through coaching, reporting, leading, advocating, building, healing, and organizing. Some of the reasons I love Hear Her Sports so much is, first up, Elizabeth is a great interviewer, and her variety of guests is incredible. She really knows how to bring us into the passion that these women have for whatever they're pursuing, whether it be open water swimming, designing boats for the America's Cup, ice hockey, triathlon, or even being a researcher like Cheryl Cookie. And I really encourage you to go listen to that episode. Through Hear Her Sports, I have become a fan of so many sports and so many women who I didn't know anything about or didn't know much about. These interviews are interesting and insightful, and, well, I just really encourage you to go have a listen. New shows drop every other week on Thursdays. You can learn more at hearhersports.com. And, of course, you can listen on all your favorite apps, and you can follow on social at Hear Her Sports. They're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All right, now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Strides Forward, where we share stories of women marathon and ultra-marathon runners. Each episode features one woman's story focused on a chosen topic. I am Cherie Louise Turner, a 51-year-old runner and also the host and creator of Strides Forward. If you're new here, thank you for checking out the show. And if you're returning, well then, welcome back. In this episode, we're featuring the story of ultra and marathon runner Charlotte Gibbs. And we're focused on the topic of relative energy deficiency in sport, which is more commonly known as Red S or REDS. It's a condition that used to be known as the female athlete triad. If you aren't familiar with any of this now, please stick with me because you will be soon. And you'll also understand why it's so important to be aware of for yourself and for other athletes you might know, especially young athletes. Red S is far more common than most of us realize, and it has some really awful consequences. But knowledge is power, so let's get to it. I wanted to note, 
This episode does touch on experiences of controlled eating and diet restriction. And if these are topics that you or those you're listening with are sensitive to, please just be aware. All right, now on to our story. For now, we're leaving the topic of Red S and going back in time to a moment that happened about 10 years ago when Charlotte was just looking to get out of a rough patch. I was living in the UK and I had, I think it's quite a typical story, a relationship breakdown and I just was feeling awful and I needed to do something and I opened my closet and I had a pair of old Reebok trainers in there. I mean, I can picture these things. They, they were huge, clunky, white. They probably were tennis shoes. I goodness knows what they were. So I put them on and out I went for a run. And I probably made, made it 100 meters down the road doing my old kind of milers <laughs> pace and just like bent over gasping, thinking, oh my God, I can't do this. But something clicked. And perhaps it clicked because Charlotte's body knew how to run. As she hinted at there, she'd been a competitive miler in high school in her hometown of Cork, Ireland. So for her, going for a run meant going really fast. But it'd been over a decade since she'd trained on the track in Cork. In the time between, she'd set up life in the UK and focused on academics. Besides, her intent now wasn't training to run a single mile really fast. It was to help her move through those crummy post-breakup blues. She was looking for a way to feel better. So she slowed her pace and gave it another go. When I started running again, it was definitely just a really pure thing. I loved the feeling of running. And I clearly had something in me that loved to run. And I very quickly was, was running kind of an hour, an hour and a half without struggling too much. I didn't have a clue how far I was going. I literally just had an old-fashioned Casio stopwatch on my wrist and off I would go and I would just pick a route. And I was probably doing that three times a week and it was lovely. And that's how I started. I had no ambition to race. I didn't want to join a club. All I wanted to do was use it as a way of clearing my head. And it worked and it made me feel so much better about myself and it gave me the boost I needed and it gave me some confidence back in a really, really low time. And it was wonderful. Charlotte kept at it, and after about six months of regular running, a friend suggested she join a local running club. So she did. I had no context for where I stood against other people, but as soon as I went to the running club, I realized, oh, okay, I'm going out with the faster, faster groups, and I'm able to keep up with them. And so people started saying to me, oh, you should race, you should race, you're really fast. Charlotte started by running a few 10Ks, she did well, and she felt strong, so she moved up to the half marathon, and within a couple of years, she was training for a marathon. And as she developed, she began to track the time and the distances she was running, and she started to follow a structured training regimen. It was only as I got more competitive in the running that I started thinking, oh, well, maybe if I was a bit lighter, and then the memories came in of back in the day when I was at school and the things, the messaging I'd learned then. And I thought, well, if running is going to be competitive, if I'm going to be a competitive runner, then I need to think like an athlete again. 
Charlotte was remembering back to those high school track days when she'd run fast enough to compete at the national championships. She'd been serious about competition, and she strove to be the very best that she could. The messages that sunk in were, you need to look like an athlete, you need to work hard, and you need to run a lot. So to the young Charlotte, it only made sense, the more you could run, the better you would be. She lived near the track, so she decided, in addition to the regular training sessions she did with her high school team, she'd go do workouts on her own. In my mind, if you could run, why not run as much as possible? So I have a really vivid memory of climbing over that fence and running, just running mile reps, because that's all I understood. I didn't really understand anything about structuring training or anything like that. I just knew, okay, I can run four laps of the track. That's a mile. I'll time it and I'll do as many of those as I can before I feel sick. There was also that drive to look like an athlete. And if, like Charlotte, you were a teen girl growing up in Ireland in the mid-1990s, there was one track athlete whom you aspired to emulate. Our hero was Sonia O'Sullivan. She was our idol. And if you've ever seen photos of Sonia O'Sullivan when her heyday, you know, she was absolutely ripped skinny. She was like the perfect model of what you would imagine a distance runner would look like. Um, so Sonia was always held up to us as this was what you should aspire to be in every possible way. So it was all about hard work. It was about running as much as possible and doing a lot of miles um, and also, yeah, being really skinny. So this was the athlete thinking that Charlotte snapped back to. And it was this drive to be really skinny combined with a lot of hard work that would come to define a lot of what would happen over the next coming years. When things started to go wrong for me, definitely, was when I started thinking about running in terms of weight control. It was never for me, it was never about if I run this much, I will be thin. It was more, if I can be thinner, I'll be a better runner. And I, I think it comes from a, from the athletics athlete's mindset, which is I want to do everything I can to be the best athlete I can be. And unfortunately, I'd internalized the concept that the best athlete I could be was also the thinnest athlete I could be. Um, and there, that's where the two became so toxically intertwined. It's a tricky, sometimes even cruel dance dealing with bodies as athletes, especially when it comes to a sport like longer distance running. There's the factor of eating. You need to fuel, but many runners also want to be lean and light, to be skinny. And this isn't just in running, of course. We see it in lots of sports. I remember it well from my bike racing days. I was always trying to lose five more pounds, no matter how thin I was. It became almost like a mantra. I was jealous of the elite racer who, rumor had it, ate lettuce for dinner. I would obsess over not being able to have that sort of discipline and beat myself up for not being able to get just that much thinner. So yeah, Charlotte is far from alone in fixating on the thinner is better model. If you're lighter and leaner, the thinking goes, you'll be a faster athlete. This, of course, creates an environment where disordered eating, 
radically imbalanced dieting, or simply underfueling can thrive in the name of weight loss and performance. Add to this the high training loads that marathon and ultra runners take on, and you can be headed into some unhealthy territory, like Red S. In its most simple terms, Red S is a syndrome that happens when you don't give your body enough of what it needs to keep up with the demands that you're putting on it. It's a condition that happens over time, and left unchecked, it will progressively get worse. One common symptom of Red S is losing your period. That's what happened to me oh so many years ago. I lost my period for about five or six years, and I thought it was a sign that I was training hard and I was serious about my sport. What I didn't realize is that I was compromising my health and likely my performance, and that I wasn't eating enough or at least not enough of the right nutrients. Loss of menstruation doesn't always happen with Red S, and Red S can happen to anyone, wherever they fall along the gender spectrum. This isn't just something that happens to menstruating people. That's one reason we no longer call this condition the female athlete triad. And it's easy to see how mixing the desire to be thin with lots of hard running workouts can land you in this situation. The key to avoiding all of this is to recognize early warning signs and then correct course. Because again, redus isn't something you catch. It's not a cold. It's not a virus. It's the result of a lot of little choices along the way. But if you don't know what to look for, the path to red S can look a lot like the path to becoming a fast, long-distance runner. And for Charlotte, her drive to be thin for running dovetailed right into a struggle that she'd been working to manage for years. I've always had issues around my, my eating and my food, and I, it's something I've struggled with probably most of my adult life. I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I've always been really, really super controlled about my food, even when I wasn't an athlete. And for whatever reason, I didn't make the correlation between running and weight control at the start in any way, shape or form, um, which is a bit weird, I have to admit. So Charlotte wasn't turning to running as a way to lose weight. She focused on controlling her diet. There was no concept of needing to eat to support the activities that you were doing. So I just thought, well, if I can eat less, then I'll lose more weight. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Because that's what we're told. Calories in, calories out. Surely that's what it is. Unfortunately, that's not how it works, particularly when you're an athlete, and even more so when you're running a lot. As Charlotte became fitter and faster, she continued to train harder and more. I was doing weeks that, that pros would do, and I wasn't. I was also working, you know, and I'm not a pro runner. You know, there would be double days. I, do, I did a lot of run commuting, so I'd run 10 miles into work in the morning with a backpack do a full day's work and run 10 miles home with a backpack a couple times a week. And then in between that, doing, doing the, these crazy track sessions, then do 23, 24 mile long run at the weekend, sometimes back to back long runs, normally a 15 to 18 mile midweek long run. So yeah, they were, the weeks were pretty tough, but when I was okay, I, I could do these weeks, and I definitely absorbed them, and I got very, very fit. 
Let's get some grounding here. Charlotte had worked her way up over several years of consistent running to tackle the marathon distance. She was strict about her diet with the aim to be as light and fast as possible. She was dedicated and disciplined in her training with the goal of being the best athlete she could be, while all the while holding down a full-time job. And it was working, for now. By 2016, she was running faster than ever before. I did the London Marathon. I ran a really good time. And then I got invited to the elite start of a race that was only two weeks later after that marathon. So I didn't really take en- en- enough of a break after the London Marathon. I probably had like two days off running. And I went to this this race and it was so exciting for me. I was on the elite start. It was a beautiful day. There were photographers. It was amazing. I was given a pair of shoes. You know, it was so cool. Experiences like these are highlights for serious amateur racers. Like Charlotte mentioned, she wasn't a pro, but here she was among the elite field. It's an achievement and an honor to earn your spot at the front of a race. Eight kilometers into the race, the <laughs> it was awful. The, um, the tendon snapped off of the metatarsal, the third metatarsal of my foot. So it was basically, it was caused by a stress fracture. So the, the stress fracture happened, but when that happened, it actually displaced the tendon. So it was an, the pain. <laughs> I dropped like a stone and the foot turned black and it was just, the whole thing was just hideous. That was a direct result, I think, of just having been horrifically overtrained and under-recovered. In an instant, everything can change. You push your body to the edges of its potential, and then it lets you know when you've pushed it too far. It breaks. For many competitive athletes, rehabbing injuries is just a regular but unfortunate part of the journey. And the recovery from that was all right, actually. I recovered from that quite quickly, and everything on the outside looked all right. You know, I was I was cleared to start training again. I did. I actually won a race probably eight weeks after that injury. It came back really quickly and strong from that. And and I think that shows that at the time I was still getting my periods and I probably, my bones were probably relatively strong still at that point. I was able to recover. But that was the start really of my injury cycle. And, and unfortunately, since then, I think I've had eight stress fractures. I've lost count. But this was still 2016, and Charlotte didn't know what was coming. She didn't realize that this first stress fracture was a warning sign of bigger issues creeping in. Issues that were sending her into an injury cycle. She didn't know that she needed to start adjusting her training and recovery, or that it was probably time to consult with a nutritionist. Now what she knew was that she'd recovered well from an ugly stress fracture— She'd given it the standard two months of rehab, she was cleared to start training again, and she was eager to get back out there. I love doing a training plan. I absolutely love the process of of ticking off the sessions. And so you love that feeling of being so fit. There's something incredibly addictive about that. And you're not willing, it's very hard to let that go. And once you've achieved that level of fitness, letting it go and letting it slip away was was psychologically incredibly challenging for me. It is an awesome feeling to be that fit. 
you need to take downtime. And I would not take that downtime. I thought, genuinely thought, that this is normal. And it's taken me a very, very long time to come to terms with the fact that, you know, it's, it's okay to not run or to just run 5K because you, that's all you need to do. And there's still that thing in me that always says, you know, you must do more, you must do more because I've got this crazy benchmark to measure myself against, which I was able to achieve once upon a time. In hindsight, of course, everything looks so much clearer. Charlotte needed to take downtime, but she loved the training, she loved to be that fit, and she'd established herself as a committed athlete who ran fast. But then I was on a structure where I had goals and aims, and if you didn't hit those goals, you felt like you potentially weren't good enough, and you weren't doing enough. And, or, you know, you went to running club and didn't feel great that night. So somebody on the, in the group was faster than you and you didn't, you suddenly just didn't feel good enough. So you needed to, to go out and do more. And it just became part of my identity. And as soon as something becomes part of your identity, you become wedded to it because that's who, that's the label that's been put on you. So you are now the runner and you feel like you need to live up to that. And living up to it means always being the runner and always being the fast one. So there's this pressure to always be the one showing up and crushing it. And there's one final element that can really send things into a tailspin. You learn how to override signals of fatigue and pain there's the inevitable tiredness you feel wrecked all the time there were a few days I remember where I I was really struggling but there is a realm of normality around fatigue I mean you have to get to the point of fatigue in order to make the adaptations which cause fitness so I think there is a certain amount of normal fatigue there, but then I think I stepped over that line quite quickly. Crossing the line between fatigue and pain you should train through and fatigue and pain that's going to result in serious health consequences is hard to pinpoint. Figuring out where that line is is a skill that's very tough to master, but it is critical to tend to. This is the art of listening to your body and adjusting to its needs, regardless of what your training program says and regardless of what popular science may say about the newest ideas in optimal diet plans. In the end, your body is the very best judge of what you need, and every single body is different. We are each an experiment of one. It's one of the many factors that makes this athlete life so endlessly fascinating but at times it is deeply frustrating. For Charlotte, she had become a bit too good at dismissing important signals from her body. And add to that, she didn't just want to stay the course. She wanted to continue getting faster. For whatever reason, I got into this mindset that I needed to start finding ways of improving. And this was around the same time that Um, podcasts had kind of just started and there were a lot of podcasts suddenly appeared where people were talking about you know how to optimize your athletic ability and of course 
Ah, carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are evil. Carbohydrates are causing insulin resistance and they're making you slow and they're making you fat. So I, of course, decided I will stop eating carbohydrates. Now, there was a big thing, you know, back back then where a lot of people were talking about paleo and it was going to be the, the, the silver bullet that was going to make us all so much more healthy. And it sounds so ridiculous to say it now because I know more than I knew then. But at the time, I just absorbed all this information and thought, well, I want to be better. I want to be healthier. So if that's the way to be healthier, I'll just um, stop eating carbohydrates. This was all happening after that 2016 London Marathon and through the next couple of years when she was experiencing those eight or more stress fractures. And it was during this time, too, that Charlotte had branched out into ultra running on the trails as well as sky running, a niche in the trail running scene where athletes tackle tough, steep mountain terrain. But in between that, I you know, I was doing things like winning a 50-mile race and doing skyrunning races in Europe. Um, so I had these, like, periods where everything was really good, and then I'd get another stress fracture. But then it would heal, and off I'd go, and then I'd get another stress fracture. Um, and I, so I was in, in the time when I was not rehabbing a stress fracture, I was actually running really, really well. And because of that, I was never really actually addressing the problem that underlay everything. What was underlying it all was a combination of factors. Charlotte's body needed to rest. She was overtraining and under-recovering. But likely even more so, she needed to fuel better. Unbeknownst to Charlotte, this carb-cutting trend wasn't setting her up for the success she expected it would. And she wasn't alone. And here, I want to pull from the seminal book Roar by Dr. Stacy Sims with Celine Yeager and published in 2016. And it says simply, The current diet trends among active people are leaving them insufficiently fueled. Specifically, the big trend in the endurance and CrossFit worlds right now is low-carbohydrate, higher-fat and protein diets. As Rohr goes on to point out, this came on the heels of the low-fat, high-carb regimen we were all told to follow in the 80s, and that turned out not to be a great option either. So this lower-carb idea, it wasn't all bad. Taken too far, however, it causes its own set of issues. And it's worth noting, as Rohr does, that a lot of women who experience symptoms of Red S, like disrupted menstruation, aren't necessarily extremely lean or even exercising excessively. They're just not getting adequate nutrition. And this was part of what Charlotte was experiencing when, at the time, she was following the prevalent thinking of the day. For her and many others, if following a low-carb diet was the way to get faster and healthier, she was going to follow these guidelines to the letter. And this added fuel to the struggles she already had around eating. All of this definitely fed into to this restrictive nature. And then as it went on, it became more obsessive. And I, had to, I would get really angry with myself if I'd slipped up. And at the same time, of course, I was also getting weaker and slower because I didn't have enough energy in my body. And so I was getting angry with myself for not being good enough. You're not fast enough. What's wrong with you? Why are you so slow? Um, and then it just really, really spiraled from there into this nasty 
environment of self-deprecation and denial. Charlotte's quest for being the best athlete she could be had transformed into a deepening personal struggle with food. And the more she tried to get it right, the worse things were becoming. So what could possibly make all of this spiraling stop? Being diagnosed with osteoporosis. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're diagnosed with osteoporosis at an early, relatively young age, and that's enough of a slap to make you realize that you've got to you've got to sort yourself out. It, was a, it wasn't a huge shock because I'd had so many stress fractures and the stress fractures just kept coming. Osteoporosis, a condition of weak, fragile, brittle bones. This is a disorder mostly experienced by people in their 80s and 90s, with a low percentage of cases seen in people in their 60s. But here was Charlotte, a competitive ultra runner in her late 30s, with this stark diagnosis. Because this is also what happens when you undernourish and overtax your body for long periods of time. I had been referred to um, a sports medicine consultant, and he was the one who sat me down and said, you have osteoporosis, you're in an energy deficit, you are an, an absolute poster child, I think he used the term for Red S syndrome. And if you don't sort out your attitude to your eating and improve your nutrition, you will never run a step again. You will never run a step again. Oof. Ultra running, marathon running, the entire intent is to run really far. The sport champions challenging your limits, pushing through pain, developing a mindset where you can endure great discomfort mile after mile. And there are great rewards in this pursuit, absolutely. But there's also potential to do yourself harm. And the further along that path you go, the longer you go without heeding those important messages from your body, the louder those messages will become. Um, so I've been doing something which I've never done before, which is doing moderate mileage, easy running. I am utterly hopeless at easy running. So I've had to learn that you know you go out and you can jog and you can jog at a really easy pace and keep your heart rate super low I still really struggle with that you know I hear the thoughts in my head go around telling me oh you should speed up even silly things like oh those people who are walking on the trail they, they think you're really slow why don't you run a bit faster because they're going to think you're really slow it's again it sounds so silly but these are the kind of negative thoughts that go that, that help self the self-sabotage becomes really strong um, so I'm learning to not listen to those thoughts I'm learning to run slow I'm learning that it's okay to do maintenance miles just build up a level of fitness ah the concerns about what other people on the trail will think when you're running so slowly I've been there myself and it does sound so silly when you say it out loud like really who cares. But still, I get it, because I've thought the same things. So Charlotte is learning to set aside that very unhelpful type of negative thinking, as have I. And instead, she's learning to listen to what her body needs, to get back in touch with its very important signals, and to give it the rest and recovery it needs. 
And her eating? She's tending to that too. I wish I could say everything was perfect, but that would be a lie. And I don't want people to think that it's normal just to flip a switch and all of a sudden everything is perfect. It's something that you have to work really, really hard on. Improving the food you're eating and actually just improving your nutritional intake and your caloric intake, that helps a lot, but it doesn't erase years and years of ingrained preconceptions about yourself and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Um, and that's a work, that's a big work in progress for me. And I think for a lot of people where we have to unlearn these attitudes around good food and bad food and oh, I can't eat this. So it's work in progress. On this path to healing and addressing entrenched habits that weren't serving her very well, Charlotte has had a chance to reflect on why she wanted to do this sport to begin with. For me, running is about adventure and freedom. So I run so that I can be fit and strong enough to have amazing adventures out in the mountains. I love the mountains. Mountains are my favorite place in the world. So any mountains at all. So my treat is to drive, um, say, out into the Welsh mountains and have a long day climbing up the mountains, running where I can run, falling into bogs, being covered in mud, face to face with sheep, <laughs> whatever it may be. I just love these long days in the mountains so much. And that's where I find my peace and my joy. And you can only do that if you're fit and if you're fit and strong enough to do it. Um, so that's basically where my joy comes from. Charlotte has also gained the wisdom of understanding how this pursuit of being the best healthiest, fastest, strongest version of herself can cross over to become its destructive opposite. And she's starting to get clarity on just what works for her. I think running has in the past actually been de detrimental to my mental health, incredibly detrimental to my mental health to some degree. Um, so I, I don't want to be one of these people who says, oh, you know, you run running for my mental health is so important because I actually understand that running is something that I do that can be very damaging for me. But it's also something that I do which can be very positive for me if I approach it correctly. And I've now got that attitude where when I'm running, I can say to myself, I get to do this. I choose to do this. I'm not doing this because I feel like I have to. And that's the way it always was in the past. I would think I have to do this run. Because if I don't do it, I will hate myself for the rest of the day. And now I'm, I can go and do the run because I want to, because it's a nice day out and I want to go and see the river and I want to see the heron that lives down at the bottom of the river. And I want to go through the woods and see how the leaves are changing color. Um, and that's a completely different attitude. And I'm not going to stand here and say, you know, it's all roses and it's all perfect. There are definitely days where I struggle, but most of the time I am able to have that healthy attitude. And it's given me the joy in running back that I had at the very start when I didn't know how far I went and I didn't know how fast I went. And I just knew I liked the feeling of running. And with that, we come to the end of Charlotte Gibbs' story centered around her Red S journey which, like she said, is still a work in progress. 
I am so thankful to Charlotte for sharing these personal details about her struggles with Red S, overtraining, and restrictive eating. These topics can be really tough to talk about, but like I said at the beginning, I believe these experiences are so much more common than we recognize, and again, awareness and knowledge are power. Thank you to Charlotte for being a part of that empowerment. Please check the show notes for links to Charlotte on social media, and I will link to the book Roar, as well as Dr. Stacy Sims and Celine Yeager's personal websites. Both these women are doing really important work around women's physiology and performance, and they're coming out with a new book really soon focused on menopause, which I, for one, am really excited about. This episode is part of our series of stories focused on running in a woman's body, where we are looking at the topics of menopause, red S, and pregnancy. Each episode features one runner talking about her experiences around one of these topics. As always, I'm very thankful to you for listening. We love making these stories, but they're made to be heard. So you being here is a critical part of that equation. The Strides Forward team includes me, Cherie Turner, your host and producer. Cormac O'Regan creates and scores all of the music you hear, and he does it from his studio in Cork, Ireland, which, of course, is the same place that Charlotte is from. April Mariner of Bonfire Collaborative does all the design work for the show, including the website, merch, and logo. She comes to you from Truckee, California, and you can find April at bonfirecollaborative.com. Strides Forward will be back in a couple weeks with another episode about running in the woman's body. Until then, this is Cherie wishing you satisfying Strides Forward. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 